Thank you for choosing to listen to our sermon podcast. My name is Chris Mitchell. I'm one of the pastors here at First Covenant Church of Anchorage. If you have any questions or prayer requests, feel free to stop by or send an email to office at anchoragefirstcovenant.com. God bless. So we've been studying the story of Ruth. And, I don't know, it made me think about that, that clip from The Princess Bride, um, where you're just this boy, and he's just like, what is the point? You're going to bore me with this story, because Ruth is a, it's just a weird story. And it's not a story that we're, we're used to reading. It's a story where God is hidden. Um, God, God isn't necessarily an active character in it. Um, God actually doesn't directly show up at all. You have to look for God. He's hidden. But despite that, um, it is an epic story, right? It's full of tragedy and loss and hope and scheming and planning and, of course, love. Of course, love. It's a love story. So we're going to go over the last chapter. So we're, we're at the end of the story. But just to catch you up, Ruth... It's a widowed Moabite, and she struggles to live into her husband's hometown, right? She, 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 she moved there after her husband died, trying to make a, make a second chance. And also her widowed mother-in-law, uh, Naomi, uh, coaches her through the customs of her people. And in the last chapter, in chapter 3, the, this widowed Moabite has brazenly proposed to Boaz, a wealthy and respected man of the village. And Boaz wants to accept, but due to some of the customs, uh, there's another person that might have a claim on uh, getting to marry Ruth first. So Boaz goes to try to sort all this out. And that's where we're just going to start, right there. And we'll start reading um, from Ruth chapter 4. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. Just then, the Redeemer about whom Boaz had been spoken was passing by. He said, Sir, come and sit down. And so he turned aside and sat down. Then he took ten men from the town's elders and said, Sit down here. And they sat down. Boaz said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has returned from the field of Moab, is selling the portion of the field that belonged to our brother, Elimelech. I thought that I should let you know and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you won't redeem it, tell me so that I may know. There isn't anyone to redeem it except you, and I am next in line after you. He replied, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, On the day when you buy the field from Naomi, you also buy Ruth the Moabite, the wife of the dead man, in order to preserve the dead man's name for his inheritance. And the pause there. Now, uh, you might have missed it, but but Boaz has done some pretty slick maneuvering there. Um, First of all, back then in Israel, all the land was considered to belong to God. Okay, it didn't really belong to anybody. It belonged to God. It was God's land. And, but it was divided amongst the tribes and the people who got to steward the land, who got to take care of it. 
So if a woman became a widow, that woman was supposed to marry of her husband. And that was to ensure that the family stays, uh, or sorry, the land stays within the family. So it's not, so the land's not all divided up. Because remember, the land is entrusted by God to these people. And that also ensures that the widow is taken care of, that the widow is not left alone. Now, if the widow, when she gets remarried, has a son, then that son is kind of considered the husband, or sorry, the son of the dead person. Not the son of the person that actually, you know, made him, but the son of the dead person. And they'll receive the land. They'll receive that land as their inheritance. So if there's any other children that might have been beforehand, they won't get the land. The new son, new kid will. And if, but if a widow is barren because of age or health or whatever, then the land just becomes the new husband's. And it can be passed along like any other land. So Boaz gets the man, um, uh, Naomi's husband's cousin, to agree to buy the land by calling it Naomi's land. He called it Naomi's land, which means that the, but the cousin says, I'll take the land. I'll, I'll, I'll agree to take Naomi take Naomi on as well. I'll, I'll marry her. But Naomi's an older woman. She's not going to have any more kids. Okay, so it's a sound investment. Sure, yeah, yeah, I'll take that woman on. It's a sound investment. But then Boaz slips it to her. Actually, uh, Naomi had some sons. And those sons were married. So the, technically then, the land isn't really Naomi's. It's Naomi's son's land. And so the, the, the person, that, that, that cousin, that redeemer, will have to marry is Ruth, not Naomi, uh, Naomi's widowed daughter-in-law. But by calling it Naomi's land, he kind of puts the cousin in a bind where he's not going to just have to take in one woman. He's going to have to take in two women. He's going to have to commit to taking care of two women instead of just one older woman. And this land has been in disuse for years. Uh, and actually, this is the first time we even heard that, that there was any land. It's been at least a decade since it was in use because uh, Ruth and Naomi, they lived in Moabite for, for 10 years. Um, well, so actually, Ruth was married to Naomi's son for 10 years. So who knows how long that it's been since that land was cleared and put to good use. But it's been at least a decade. And so it's going to take a lot of time and labor, i.e. money, to make that land profitable, to make that land serviceable. And, and since the guy that's taking on the land is going to have to marry Ruth, who's much younger, there's a chance that him and Ruth are going to have a son. And that son would inherit all the land, which would leave, actually leave less for all of his other children that he might have. Because the guy had to invest his money into clearing the land, taking care of the land. And then he's going to have to take care of Ruth. Then he's going to have to take care of Naomi. So it's a risk. So to put it simply, the, the man has to buy, that wants to buy Naomi's field. He'd have to support two women for the rest of their lives. Uh, one of which is a Moabite, an ancestral enemy of Israel while still having to spend time, labor, and money to make the land profitable. And he might lose out on it all anyways. And Boaz, Boaz did all this in the presence of respected witnesses, so that the potential redeemer, that cousin, 
would held be, be held accountable for everything he said or did. All right, he kind of put him in a bind. Everything Boaz said was true, but he kind of set the stage to make it a, more profitable for him so that he can marry Ruth as he wanted to do. So let's continue on, chapter six, or sorry, verse six. But the redeemer replied, then I can't redeem it myself without risking damage to my own inheritance. Remember, he's going to have to spend his money to clear the land, all that other good stuff. Redeem it yourself. You can have my right of redemption because I am unable to act as the redeemer. In Israel in former times, this was the practice regarding redemption and the exchange to confirm any such matter. A man would take off his sandal and give it to the other person. This was the process for making a transaction binding in Israel. Then the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he took off his sandal. Boaz announced to the elders and to all the people, Today you are the witnesses that I bought forth from the land of Naomi, all that belonged to Elimelech, and all that belonged to Chilon and Melon. Those are the sons. And also Ruth the Moabite, the wife of Melon. I've bought to be my wife, to preserve the dead man's name for his inheritance, so that the name of the dead man might not be cut off from his brothers or from the gate of his hometown. Today you are my witnesses. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are your witnesses. May the Lord grant that the woman who is coming into your household be like Rachel and like Leah, both of whom built up the house of Israel. May you be fertile and Ephrateth, and may you preserve an, and may you preserve a name in Bethlehem, and may your household be like the household of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah, through the children that the Lord will give you from this young woman. So Boaz. Boaz, the respected, he's respected, he's privileged, and I kind of went over all that earlier in another sermon. But he lets everyone know. He tells everyone, hey, I'm gonna bind myself. To, to, this, to this Moabite woman, this foreigner. I'm going to bind myself to Ruth. And I'm going to take any consequences of that union. Any consequences that come up. I'm going to lose money. If I lose money, I'm going to lose money. She's worth it. It's okay. And the people of the village, they respond, right? They respond to saying that that, that, that Moabite, that, that, that foreigner, that outsider, Ruth, they all change. They say, she's one of us. She's one of us now. She's become like us. And just like all these other mothers of Israel, may God's promises, may the promises that God made to his people be preserved through her. Okay? She may have been an outsider. She may have come to us an outsider, but she belongs with us now. She's one of us, um, regardless of her blood. And the community's welcoming. They say that she belongs. Uh, moving on to 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he was intimate with her, and the Lord let her become pregnant, and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, May the Lord be blessed who today hasn't left you without a redeemer. May his name be proclaimed in Israel. He will restore your life and sustain you in your old age. Your daughter-in-law, who loves you, has given birth to him. She is better for you than seven sons. Naomi took the child and held him to her breast, and she became his guardian. She took in the grandson and said, like, no, she became, the, she became like the mom. And the neighborhood women gave him a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi. 
They called his name Obed. He became Jesse's father and David's grandfather. These are the generations of Perez. Perez became the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Anemadab, Anemadab the fan of, fan, father of Nashon, Nashon the fa father of Solomon, Solomon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. Now, do you hear all of that? Naomi had a son. Uh, Boaz honored the laws concerning property, and knowing Naomi, Naomi, at the beginning of this book, at the beginning of this story, she had lost everything. She had lost her country. She had lost her husband. She had lost her children. And, and, and she was so angry and so upset. She told everyone that she's changing her name. Don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, which means bitter. She changed her name to bitter because she was so angry because her life was empty, and because God had turned away from her. It's like, no, I am bitter. But she's gone back to Naomi. She's gone back to being Naomi, which means pleasant. Um, that's what the word Naomi means. Because her life is filled. And, 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 and the child, the child uh, of Ruth and Boaz becomes her child, hers to take care of, hers to raise up. Uh, Naomi became his guardian. And that's the, the grandfather of King David, part of the lineage of Jesus, the Messiah, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, whose name is Emmanuel, right? God's with us. Because God, this is one thing the story shows us, right? God has always been with us. God had always been with Ruth. God had always been with Naomi. God never left nor forgot Ruth and Naomi in their sorrow and their grief. God did not let their sorrow, their heartache, their loss be the end of their story. Rather, God worked with them and through them. And God worked with them and through Boaz. Right? And God worked uh, even within the community, within the people of Bethlehem. God was with all these people working through them to weave together a better story than, than what was obvious. Oh, yeah, yeah. Another old lady, lost her husband, ends up homeless. Eh. No, God makes a better story than that. Ruth and Naomi, uh, they're nobodies. I mean, like really, if you, if you look at them, like, who are they? They're, they're nobody. They're the least of the least. But this story, this story is picked up and woven into a larger story, into the best story, the story of a God who does not leave his people. I mean, I, I'm really wondering, like, like God just said, like, yeah, th this family, this this little family story. I'm gonna I'm gonna put this in my holy scripture. People should know this forever because it represents a God that does not leave His people, even when they leave Him, right? Even when they flee to another country, um, abandoning their their promises, like Naomi's husband did at the very beginning of this, the story. They left Israel. They moved in with their enemies. But God did not abandon them. Even when it appeared like they had no future, when Naomi's sons died, God did not abandon them. And even when they returned back to Bethlehem, when they came back to their old, when Naomi comes back to her old hometown with her tail between the legs because life had kicked her in the teeth and it was over, God did not forgotten them. Even in their failure, 
and the shame and the pain that life didn't work out like they planned. God took their story and God wove it into his cosmic redemption story, right? God weaves that story into the line of Jesus. Church, there, there's a time when, when people, when, when we feel like things are just dead, things are just dead inside, when there's no hope, when there's no way forward. I, I just don't see a way forward. And things seem too far gone. That's when we need to remember, right? That, that scripture has stories like that. A story where Naomi, whose name was Pleasant, she changed it to bitter because God had, because she had turned bitter. She turned bitter against God. She turned bitter against God's promises. She turned bitter against life. She thought God had forgotten her, but God sees. And I, I don't prescribe to a point of view which makes uh, God the author of evil. I don't think God wills bad things for people. I don't think there's a lot of evil that happens in the world. There's sickness, there's cancer. We all have hard stories. We all know people that have unfairly suffered. I don't think that God is the author of those things. Um, that's not to say bad things don't happen. It's broken, and it's, it bends under the weight of sin. And I, I wish sometimes we had a better um, explanation of evil in the world, of like why there's hunger, why people die, why people get sick, why relationships end, um, why people suffer. I mean, I can honestly say, well, it's because of sin. Because sin is, is, is ripping apart creation from creator, right? It's, it's, it's tearing, tearing things away from the way God wants them to be. Um, I mean, that's the ultimate answer. Well, that's why. But, you know, we still wonder, well, but why that? And honestly, Scripture doesn't give that much of an answer. It gives a little bit of an answer, but it doesn't give that much of an answer. Um, and I think it's because when we're in pain, when we're hurt, you know, we might ask why, but really we don't care. We're like, why, God, why? And, you know, somebody tries to tell you, like, why, why did this happen? And they're like, well, actually, you made a bad choice here, and that led to this, and that led to that. No, people don't want to hear it. They don't care. <laughs> I mean, they, people ask why, but that doesn't matter. They're hurt. Because when you're hurt, no amount of logic or reasonable explanation matters. When you're in pain, even though you might say why, you don't really care. It's more like, how can I survive? How can I get out of this? You know, now what? And, and in this world, we are in the, there are so many terrible things that happen. But in the middle of our tragedies, God is still there at work. And that's what the book of Ruth shows us. God sees. And God's at work in the lives of all these, these little people, these nobodies. God is at work behind the scenes in the middle of these tragedies. Right? God is at work when Boaz tells Ruth, hey, harvest in my fields so that he can make sure that she could work in safety and would be able to harvest enough grain. Um, and, and whenever... Boaz said that. Ruth said, um, why, why are you paying attention to me? I'm a poor immigrant. I'm a poor widowed immigrant from Moab. And Boaz said, it's because you're a poor widowed immigrant from Moab. <laughs> yeah, that's why you can work in my fields. You need this help. Because <laughs> that's how God works, right? Um, God's intervention 
Ruth's life reflects the heart of God. That the things that appear to disqualify a person are precisely the reason why God intervenes. It's why God's faithful, even to those people that appear to be unworthy of that faith. And, and Ruth, she displays the heart, of, the heart of God, right? Because Ruth, despite all of her disadvantages, she never gives up. She still remains faithful to her ex-mother-in-law. Okay, um, what's the technical definition between the relationship between a person and their ex-in-laws? Their ex-in-laws. There, there isn't one. Because there is no relationship there. That ex means it was cut off. But Ruth binds herself to a woman that she had no tie to anymore. She binds her life to, to her. She binds her life. Ruth, Ruth binds her life to a woman that had given up on life, right? Who changed her name to bitter. Because Ruth loved Naomi and bound their lives together. And that's how God loves us, right? Our sin, he loves us despite our sins, despite our brokenness. Um, I mean, from our history, from Adam on, we just have a history of broken relationship with God, of faithlessness with God. Yep, but yet, while we were sinners, while we were sinners, while we were lost, while we thought we were forgotten, God sent his son Jesus, Jesus to die for us. God continued to bind himself more and more to us. And so despite seeming like a dead end, like a failure, like somebody who just washed out of life, God was still there redeeming. And, and if you read through Scripture, um, especially the Old Testament, you can see so many times when God's people um, or God's plans or God's dreams just kind of seem to come to a dead end. They're like, oh, well, that didn't happen. I mean, if you study the history of Israel about how it had been conquered and exiled under the rule of this power or this country or that, um, the history of Israel, um, biblical Israel, it's a history of dead ends. That's just the scripture, not even talking about the modern stuff, um, you know, history of Jews throughout the ages. I'm just talking about biblical times. The history of Israel just seems to be a dead end over and over again. Um, the book of Isaiah even references the line of David as a stump of what used to be a tree, right? A cut, cut off tree. Been knocked down. It appears to be dead. But Isaiah 11 claims that out of that stump, new life will grow. And it will bear fruit. Because there's nothing that's too far from God. There's nothing that's too far from God, for God. And that's the same true that with our lives, right? Um, our lives are never so far gone that it cannot be redeemed. There's never any so far away that it cannot be saved. I mean, that doesn't mean that we can avoid consequences of life. Or that things... Um, are going to be exactly like we imagined. No, life will be different. That life will look different. But even when it appears that our lives are done and dead and gone, and we think of ourselves as worthless or damaged or unredeemable or forgotten, there can still be new life. There's still a story there that can be redeemed. <clears throat> um, a few weeks ago, I was, uh, I was, I was in Uniclete um, at Covenant Bible Camp, and it was a great time. My first time getting to go, um, and if you've never gone, you should go. 
you know, volunteer, even as an adult, help out, work in the kitchen, whatever. It's a great place to be. It's a special place. Um, and so, you know, as the guest uh, pastor there, you know, I got to share stories about my lives. And some of the counselors, they still, they shared stories about their lives. And uh, the camp elder that week was uh, Jean Mute. Uh, many of you know her. She's shared stories of her life. And then, uh, but about halfway through the camp, maybe maybe closer to the end, um, so maybe it was Thursday, um, right before I was supposed to preach, my youngest son, he said, he asked me, uh, are you, are you going to tell any stories? And I said, well, probably. He goes, why? Your stories are so sad. <laughs> they make me sad. And I was like, oh, <laughs> thanks, son. <laughs> Um, that's you know just what you want to hear right before you get to speak to a bunch of kids, huh? Um, <laughs> but what he said it, it changed my message for the night, and I had to rewrite the message on the fly because I really wanted to make it clear, and he missed it, and so if he missed it, maybe other people missed it too. Maybe the other high school students missed it too. That my story, my life story, is not a tragedy. It's not a tragedy. It it wasn't a sad story despite sad parts in the story. And if my son missed that, then he missed the whole point. Right? Um, and I, I couldn't risk other campers missing that point. And I wanted to make it clear that all these counselors that shared stories, right, and these elders that shared stories of, of, of abuse and of rape and the terrible things that have happened to them, of abandonment, of loss, those stories, they are hard, hard stories. But they're not tragedies. Okay, because that's only part of the story. Their story continues on. Right? Those stories are love stories. Those are like epic adventures. They're sweeping romances that should make you like weak in the knees and starry-eyed, right? Those are good stories. Because the stories they don't end with the heartbreak. They end with the deliverance. They end with the rescue. Ruth is not a story about a person that lost everything. It's a, it's a love story about a person who gains everything. It's a love story about, about people who are lost and a God who's never forgotten them. I mean, oh, so most of you uh, know Jean Mute. Um, he, and she, she preached here a couple weeks ago. But her story, you talk to her story. You meet with her. You, you just talk to her. Anybody that spends any time with her, you know that her, her life is not a tragedy. Her life is not a tragedy. Anybody that knows Jean knows that about her. She's, she's had a great life. Her life is a love story. Anybody that spends time with me, um, I, I hope you would know, you'd be able to tell that my story is not a tragedy. It's, it's a love story. It's a, it's a story about a God who's always been there for me, even when the things of this world, even when the brokenness of the, myself and, and the people around me have been against me. God redeems. God has shown up. God has saved. Um, I mean, just to, to borrow this from the, this, the language of the movie Princess Bride that we just saw the little clip of earlier, our stories are of, of fencing and fighting and torture and revenge and giants and monsters and chases and escapes and true love and miracles, right? But they're not tragedies. They're not tragedies. Or at least they don't have to be tragedies. 
Because we have a God that is for us, not against us. That hopes for us. That has not given up on us. A God that would and has given up his life for us. So that we never have to be apart from him. Those are the types of stories that we get to live. Those are the types of stories that you have lived. uh, Many of you. I'm not telling you guys things that you don't know. Think of the worst things that have happened to you, many of you. And think of your life. Is it a tragedy? I know most of you. And I'm not saying that there, there hasn't been devastating heartbreak. But I can say, you're not a tragedy. But I guess you get to define that story. And you get to say what that story is going to be. Um, but the story that God has written for you is a better one. Let's pray. Holy Father God, thank you for inviting us into a bigger story, into a better story. Thank you for inviting us into a better life. A story that's not defined by the things that we've lost, but the things that we have gained. About who we've gained and how you've transformed us, Lord. Thank you for inviting us into that story. And Lord, we ask for the strength to uh, live into that. For the um, courage to say, to say, yes, I, I, I want to be in that story. To let it transform us. And to be redemptive. In Christ's name. Amen.